All right, hello everyone. Thank you so much for coming today. Uh, I'm Kevin Navratel. I'm a Democracy Commitment Coordinator here at Marin Valley. Uh, what we try to do is plan events to promote civic literacy, and we thought um, with current events, uh, with the impeachment process that just ended this last week, we thought now would be a good time to, to talk not only about the most recent impeachment case uh, with Donald Trump, but to provide a historical context of previous cases, uh, provide some details of the more recent case, and then also talk about just implications of where we're at now after this um, impeachment process and, and the implications it could have on the 2020 election. But with that in mind, we really want to cater it to any of your interests, um, questions, um, reactions, and thoughts that you may have. So feel free at any point, uh, real informal, just raise your hand and we will uh, answer any question or uh, allow you to make any comment that you would wish. So today, uh, in addition to uh, myself, uh, we have Mary Fafleese, who I think she teaches everything on campus. <laughs> She's a political science professor, sociology professor, history professor. Um, so she's going to start off by telling us a little bit about the historical context of uh, impeachment. So thank you very much, Mary. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Hi, everybody. Good to see you all here. And it, as uh, Professor Navratil said, we're pretty uh, informal, both of us. So if you want to just, you know, we, my class and I had a discussion last week that was um, about some of these topics that were, that were uh, coinciding with uh, what we're talking about today. So please feel free to ask any questions anytime. So we're talking about impeachment today. And for my History 201 students, we haven't gotten into the Constitution yet. We're close to getting there now. But I've pulled up a few sections, and some of them are, are not full quotes, but just um, some of it to give you an idea of where it is in the Constitution and what it says about it. There's actually very little written in the Constitution about impeachment. They kept it general on purpose. Um, so if you notice, on the first, Article 1, and uh, there are two segments about the legislative branch, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. So if you, you can read it for yourselves, um, but basically the, the House has the sole power and the Senate has the power to try impeachment. That's why I think there's been a lot of confusion about people not knowing when they, you know, they hear impeachment, well, was he actually impeached? Was he not impeached? What's happening right now with President Trump? And the answer is that he was impeached in the House of Representatives, but in order to be actually removed from office, he would have had to be removed um, um, by the Senate in the trial. Um, Article 2, which covers the executive branch, talks about a few issues about how the, the president can issue pardons, um, except in cases of impeachment. So he really can't pardon himself. If he was removed from office, he wouldn't be able to do that. Um, and then the second part about, you know, they'll be removed from office on impeachment and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So again, there's, there's a vagueness to this wording deliberately. Um, and there's some codification of it in things like the Federalist Papers and things that were written around the time that the Constitution was being, was being written and, and edited um, to give some more clarification on it. But a lot of it is kind of based on like on precedent, and there isn't all that much precedent because you know how many have there been? Um, you know we had the three that were impeached, and we've had the one almost impeachment. So um, as you see the dates up there, you've got the, um, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump. Now everybody always thinks that that Richard Nixon is on this list. He's actually on the next list. He's the almost impeached, like the would have been impeached had he not resigned from office. Um, but basically, these, are the, these three gentlemen were impeached in the House of Representatives, but none of the three of them were actually removed in the trial in the Senate. So, we'll get to all, actually all of them. Uh, so this is Richard Nixon in the, the Watergate scandal. This is actually his, the picture of him saying goodbye. Goodbye, America. I'm getting on my, air, my uh, helicopter and making my way back to California after he resigned. So let's talk first about Andrew Johnson. 
So this is a map here. It's not the greatest map, but it kind of gives you an idea of the 11 states that had seceded from the Union during the Civil War. And in order to understand Johnson's impeachment, you've got to understand some of this context. So we have this divide, right? This, this civil war that goes on far longer than anyone expected it to go on for, for four years. Um, the, the casualties now, you know, historians have amended the original number and they're saying it's close to a million possibly for people that died later that they just didn't account for um, initially. Um, and, you know, really, literally the brother against brother, cousin against cousin, friend against friend. So how do you bring a country back together again um, 11 states that are basically legally, they have, they have said, we, we are no longer in the union, we've broken away, we've formed our own separate country, our own separate laws, our own constitutions, each state had its own constitution, um, and we're gonna do things our way. How do you bring those people back into the fold when the Civil War was lost and, uh, and slavery was ended by the 13th Amendment? So, we get to Andrew Johnson. So Andrew Johnson, you know, really was only for like about one month had been uh, Abraham Lincoln's vice president. Andrew Johnson was originally a Democrat. Lincoln chose him, Lincoln was, was a Republican. He chose Johnson as his running mate to kind of send a signal to the border states and to the southern states that he wanted to kind of you know, reunify the country. So uh, when Lincoln's assassinated several days after the Civil War, Johnson assumes office. Now, initially, Southerners were afraid of Andrew Johnson because his, the rhetoric that he, you know, he was kind of, he resented that planter class, like that, that Scarlett O'Hara kind of gone with the wind type class. Um, and he made a lot of comments about the idea of, of punishment. But once he actually got into office, um, his, his antipathy and his uh, lack of, let's say, um, uh, feeling for the freed slaves basically trumps his, his desire to be, uh, to be uh, harsh on the Southern planter class. So his plan is to go lenient like, like President Lincoln would have been and bring them back in as soon as they possibly could. Well, with that, by Johnson's plan, like by the end of like 1865, so the war ends in April, right? This is December of 1865. Uh, all these Confederates who were just in uniform, like just a few months before, were like going back into the, you know, to the Congress like nothing had ever happened. Like, hey, we're back again. Great to see you. Um, and they started basically doing business as usual. So all the different southern states began passing laws that became known as Black Codes. So that's sort of my ode to like orange is the new black, but that didn't really work very well. Black codes of the new slavery. Um, the idea that these, were, these laws were essentially slavery light. You know, is everything but name. So in other words, if you were, if you were a freed slave, uh, you had to have a job. If you didn't have a job, you could basically be jailed. Um, you could not own weapons. You could not drink. Of course, sexual relations between um, blacks and whites was totally not permitted, illegal. So um, those laws began basically restricting freedmen's rights the second they even get them. So. Um, Congress then is not that happy with, uh, with Johnson's actions. And every war, you guys, pretty much if you look throughout history, in the United States at least, there's always this kind of this fight between the legislative branch and the executive branch, right? The, legis the legislative branch declares war, but it, it, the executive branch is, you know, he's the commander in chief, so he essentially kind of runs the operation. So at, when the wars are usually over, there's always that, that fight, that, that kind of that, that toggle between them, who's going to resume power? So Congress says, we don't really like the way Johnson's doing stuff. And so they start to do a series of things themselves. So one of the things they pass is called the Tenure of Office Act. The Tenure of Office Act essentially says that, that President Johnson or any president could not fire people in his cabinet without their consent. Now technically, according to the Constitution, the president can. Um, but this was, they were so basically angered at the fact that he was, like, he was basically uh, undermining every single reconstruction bill that was out there. So in other words, to give you an idea, bills that were to protect civil rights for freed slaves, um, anything that was going to extend or help people to reconstruct the South, he was vetoing those bills. Congress overrode those vetoes 
but it was there was a lot of, of, of animosity between them. Now this this I'm making it seem like this is just four things. There was actually a lot more. There was actually two attempts to actually to go for impeachment. Um, the first the first attempt failed. It never got beyond the House. Um, but after uh, Andrew Johnson felt emboldened by the first time that he did not get impeached, um, or did not make it past the House Judiciary Committee, he went ahead and fired Edwin Stanton, who was the Secretary of War. Now Edwin Stanton was called a radical Republican because he was a Republican who actually believed that freed slaves deserved some rights. They essentially should they have the right to be free, the right to vote, et cetera, et cetera. So he, they were radical, own land, et cetera. So he fires Edwin Stanton. Well, when he does that, that's a, a clear violation in Congress's eyes of the tenure of a violation of the Tenure of Office Act, and the House begins to start impeachment inquiries. And as I said, so Republicans were not totally you know, together on this. There were some who felt that this was not a good idea, others who felt it was, and it, it took quite a while to kind of get this momentum going. This is actually the, oh, sorry, the D got set in the second line, but it's, uh, this is the, the House impeachment, uh, part of the House Judiciary Committee. Um, so Johnson was eventually impeached in the House, uh, 126 to 47, uh, and then it, from there it went to the Senate. Now, in the Senate, this is what's so fascinating about history. I love this kind of stuff. People were issued, there was a huge, huge interest in this. People, you had to get tickets in order to be able to go. The tickets were color-coordinated, so depending on the day that you wanted to go, like if you were able to get tickets, it was almost like a, you know, a show. Everyone wanted to go, go see the impeachment. So people were going, and this, this went on for several months, in the, the trial in the Senate. And uh, basically, at the end of the day, uh, Andrew Johnson is acquitted, is acquitted in the Senate by one vote one vote shy of the two-thirds majority. Now what's so interesting is that Andrew Johnson did not have a vice president. So if he'd gotten impeached, and he was actually, or if he, I'm sorry, if he got removed from office, the guy that would have been the next one in line was the president pro tempore, a guy by the name of Benjamin Wade. Benjamin Wade was a, another radical Republican himself. So it's always really interesting to think of like, what if, if he'd become president, what would the United States look like? Maybe laws would have been passed that would have actually protected freed people's rights. Maybe you, know, you wouldn't have, have had the violence in the South that began with you know, groups like the Ku Klux Klan, et cetera, um, and going into the Jim Crow South and lynchings, et cetera. Who knows? Maybe things could have turned out very, very differently. Um, I'm not saying it would have been a piece of cake, but it could, have been, it could have been different. But no matter what, that one vote, that one person who didn't vote to convict ended up acquitting Andrew Johnson, and he, did not, he was not um, uh, uh, removed from office. So he is, uh, that's him. He's kind of a angry looking fellow. Um, basically so unpopular that his own party didn't even nominate him the next time around. So it was like, see ya, you were acquitted. But this was, this was uh, May of 1868 and the next election was in November of 1868. So he didn't even make it past the next election. So that's Johnson. Comments, thoughts, questions on this one? Okay. So now we're gonna skip ahead quite a bit. Um, so this is, this is Richard Nixon. Uh, Richard Nixon, such an interesting kind of like tortured guy, really. I mean, Richard Nixon, I, I've, you know, he's one of the smartest presidents we've ever had, one of the brightest presidents. He was brilliant in foreign policy. He had a lot going for him, um, kind of a self-made man. Uh, from Quaker backgrounds, we were actually talking about the Quakers last time in class, um, but he had some definite, some definite insecurities. He was very, very insecure about himself. He was very insecure about his position. Um, he resented people that were kind of the upper class, people like the Kennedys, you know, because he, he, he went against John F. Kennedy in 1960 and lost. Um, and so he had kind of a, a major kind of issue with people like that, kind of not unlike Johnson, actually. It's interesting. I just thought of that parallel right now. Um, but what happened with Nixon? What did he do? Okay. I'm gonna, well, let me show you first. I'm going to do an escape here for a second. I meant to pull this up before. But I'm going to open up here a map. I want you to see something. 
1972, Nixon was now going for re-election. And I just want to show you the election results. These are all, this is actually a really cool website if those of you are interested for like political ads and things like that. But the red is Nixon and the blue is George McGovern, his opponent. You see that? McGovern, like that one state, basically everything else went to Nixon. So when you put it in that, you look at that, you think, well, then why did he do what he did? Um, and that kind of goes back to some of those insecurities. So let's get into what he actually did or what we think he did. And there's so much more to this story that I would love to like, get into greater detail about. And if you have questions about it, we can ask them. So in June of 1972, uh, while this election is going on, the, the campaign for, the, for November, um, it's discovered that there's a break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Complex. The Watergate was a new, relatively new complex that had like apartments, a hotel, et cetera. And the Democrats had their headquarters based there. And it was discovered that there was a break-in at, the, at the, their headquarters. Um, and then the, the story kind of like died. It wasn't really a big story. As you saw on that map, uh, Nixon got overwhelmingly reelected, so there wasn't the issue of, you know, he didn't win. But the story remained there. And they went on trial um, in early 1973, and the, guy who were the, the men who were the burglars, in this case, the Watergate burglars, were convicted. And it began to emerge kind of quietly that there were perhaps some links between them and the White House. Some money was deposited in some of their bank accounts, and it was just this kind of vague story. But most people, Americans, weren't paying attention to this. They were like, oh, whatever. They were going about their daily lives. The Vietnam War was coming to an end. Um, there were so many other things to be thinking about and worrying about. This was not on people's minds. But the story did not die. And you know, I didn't include this on here, but we, you, know, you had two reporters from the Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein, who got basically, who had a, a non, an anonymous source who was giving them information. And the story just didn't die. They kept coming out with stories, further stories that were getting closer and closer and closer to incriminating the White House. And it came to the point where basically it, it became too loud to ignore. So you had both the, you know, the Senate and the House looking into these, these, these different <coughs> investigations into Watergate. A special prosecutor is, is appointed by the Attorney General to investigate what happened. And in the process, Nixon kind of fires a few people who basically he thinks are, are kind of weighing him down, who are part of it. And it emerges as the Senate continues to investigate and they bring in witnesses to, to talk to them that there are tapes. Now, every president since Kennedy was taping themselves in, in, in the White House. They would tape themselves because they thought that afterwards they'd write their memoirs. Kennedy thought, well, when I'm done being president, I'll listen to all these tapes and I will write my my autobiography that way. Didn't work out for him very well, um, but Johnson continued it and then so did Nixon. Well, when it merged that you know, there were tapes, obviously everyone wanted to get their hands on these tapes. Now Nixon, of course, is gonna claim what most presidents would claim, that he's got executive privilege, that he does not have to turn them over, it's his privilege to have them, um, and will not turn them over. Now at some point, the pressure kind of gets so great that he releases like, basically like, um, um, not audited, um, edited versions of these tapes. But the tapes themselves already emerged that, you know, he says some like racist language and very bigoted language. It doesn't sound that great on tape, but it's still not some major evidence linking him to the Watergate break-in. Well, by this point now, the House has got its own in, um, impeachment inquiry going, and basically it's taken, the case is taken to the Supreme Court to determine whether or not he's got to give up the tapes. And in July of 74, the Supreme Court says, you cannot acclaim executive privilege, you must give up, up the unedited tapes. So he gives up the tapes, and on the tapes, there's kind of that smoking gun that says that Nixon, not that Nixon necessarily, we don't know if he ordered the break-in, but we know that he ordered the cover-up to the break-in. 
So he obstructed justice in that sense. We don't know that he, I mean, there was all sorts of other stuff. At one point, he was asking the CIA to tell the FBI to call off the investigation into Watergate. I mean, like the CIA, even for them, they were like, no, that's a little bit too much, even for us, because you're not supposed to have, you know, the, you know your, your spies, basically your, your, your central intelligence that deals with world matters to be dealing with your domestic uh, uh, situations. Um, so there were some, a lot of things that had been happening over the years. But once the, the tapes emerged that Nixon um, had ordered the break-in to, uh, to the, the cover-up of the break-in, excuse me, basically he'd lost all support. And so in, in 74, Nixon basically says that the Senate Republicans come to see him in the White House and they said, listen, we're not, we, we can't stop it. The House had already voted um, to move forward with an impeachment inquiry. Um, and the Senate, the Senator said, listen, you're gonna get, if you don't, if you don't resign, you're going to be in, removed from office in the Senate. We cannot stop it. So basically the, ne the next day, he essentially resigned and became the very first president in U.S. history to do so. I thought I had another, another uh, picture actually behind that, but we do, I have video. I could also, also pull up of this if we've got time uh, later on. We'll see. So that's the Nixon story. And, and when he resigned, Gerald Ford, his vice president, became president. But you, know, you have to think about it. So that was, that was um, 1974. Vietnam was just ending. The Watergate thing happens. So people are really losing, Americans are really losing their trust in government, their faith in their government leaders, and are becoming really cynical. And that is gonna continue. So that by the time we get to the 1990s, to a different context altogether, it's a totally different ballgame. So the media before wouldn't usually like cover, you know, presidents have always been cheating on their wives. I and mean, like, this is like nothing new, right? Um, there was always like some kind of a, um, a story that reporters would get quietly, like Kennedy had like pretty much a revolving door of women coming in and out of the White House. Um, and I'm not even saying that facetiously, there were a lot of women coming in and out of the White House. But they didn't, they didn't cover that kind of stuff. But when we get to the 80s, a different form of journalism kind of takes, takes shape, takes root. And it's the journalism that's, that's looking into ratings. Right, because before, you know, the, the ABC, NBC, CBS, their job was essentially to like cover the news and it, it was known that, you know, the news doesn't make any money. They're not there to make money. Well, in the 80s, things began to change and the corporate owners of these, of these uh, media outlets wanted to make money. And so how do you make money? You got to get ratings. How do you get ratings? Sex. Sex always sells, right? So there was a guy named Gary Hart uh, who ran for president um, and was basically undone in, in, in 84, was that Gary Hart, I think it was, 84? Um, by a, a scandal that emerged that he had a mistress and he was forced to suspend his campaign. Um, and then Bill Clinton became president in 1992. And from the beginning, like even before he got elected president, there was talk about you know, that he had sexual harassment cases against him. Um, and he seemed to kind of be able, be able to weather those and get through the election. I think if that happened now, I don't think you ever would have made it past the point that he made it, but it was a different, still kind of a different time. Oh no, that he that he wouldn't make it past. What happened in 2016? Well, but that's different, different guy, different guy. The rules are different. That's what I would say. I mean, I, that's why I would. I, I know what you're saying, and it does seem like you you want it like an, a normal person would say, a reasonable person would say, well, really? I mean, doesn't that change the ballgame for everybody? I still think it wouldn't because the pressure would be on it. So unless he was bold enough to be like Trump and say, I'm not leaving, I don't care, you know, and bring out Trump's mistresses to the next debate the way that Trump brought Clinton's mistresses to the debate against Hillary Clinton, that's a different story, right? And most, most people don't act like that. So that, that's why I'm saying, you know, and I don't know, I'd be curious to think what, what, you, what you think as well, Kevin, but I, I still think that uh, that would not, he wouldn't get away with it. Um, it just seems like they, the rules are different for, uh, for, for the current president. So. Monica Lewinsky, and, and I felt bad, you know, I really didn't even want to include her name that much because so much of this got focused on her. It became known as like the Lewinsky scandal. 
when why wasn't it known as the Clinton scandal? Because he's the one who was, you know, the president who was cheating on his wife and having sex with an intern. Like, but the, the, the onus was on her. And so she was an intern at the White House and was having a relationship with the president for about a year, I believe. Then she was given a job. She transferred uh, from being an intern, unpaid, to being uh, to a job at the Pentagon um, and, and was working there. And she met this woman named Linda Tripp. They, she became her friend. Um, and it told Linda Tripp what had happened um, about her affair with, with President Clinton. And because there, and there's so much going on here too that I'm not even getting into. Uh, and feel free, Kevin, if you want to jump in to find something I'm missing. But basically, there was an ongoing sexual harassment case against Pre President Clinton, amongst many other investigations that were going on, um, by a woman, a woman by the name of Paula Jones, who incidentally Trump brought Paula Jones to uh, the debate, I believe, or had her on a um, like a, 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 a had a press conference before the debate. Um, and so Ms. Lewinsky was, was given a subpoena to come and testify as to what happened with her relationship with, uh, with President Clinton. So I'm fast forwarding through different things. It was emerged that, that, he, that Clinton had told her not to say too much under, under oath, not to basically to lie about what happened. Um, again, whether that's precisely true or not, we don't, we don't know. Uh, but Clinton himself in another investigation testified as, when he was asked that he did not have uh, sexual relations with her. And it's very clear. It's like, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, um, when indeed it came out like, like a couple years later. Indeed, I did have improper relations with her. Um, but yeah, so, but Linda Tripp, unbeknownst to Miss Lewinsky, had been taping everything. So like, really good friend, right? She's like taping the whole entire story. And uh, yeah, she was, uh, yeah, a bit sneaky. But again, you know, it was interesting though with the focus of this is all on though what Linda Tripp did, all on what Monica Lewinsky did, and, and yet President Clinton... You know, and this is my own sort of interpretation. Again, please jump in if you think I'm wrong. But he kind of seemed to kind of skate through things, which I think had a lot to do with the economy, too. Yeah, I would just uh, add that. Um, so he was testifying under oath about the Paula Jones mm -hmm. case, right? So the um, special prosecutor, Ken Starr. Mm -hmm. I don't have money. It was Ken Starr. Yeah, I don't have um, money here. I'm sorry. They, I knew, have here. they knew about Lewinsky. So they, they've got him and talking to him about mm -hmm. Paula Jones under oath. Um, and while under oath, he's basically denying the Lewinsky affair. Mm -hmm. So and they, some, oh, they had him on that. <laughs> and that was connected to the Whitewater investigation too. Some, it was like a whole big, he was being investigated pretty much the entire eight years that he was. Again, things are starting to shift and resemble kind of what they are today, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so yes, thank you for clarifying that. So um, and, and I'm skipping a lot of details. Yes, sir, go ahead. Were there any convictions? Uh, in the Paula Jones matter? No. I don't yeah, know what relevance that really has with, with President Clinton, though, at least, at least that part. You're saying, well, they, they both had uh, sorted um, sex lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, this was a consensual uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. 
and, uh, and, and the original investigations, which were long and, and very expensive, were um, started for third look in Whitewater and stuff and ended up going into his personal mm -hmm. life, which did not impact his role as president. Right, right. So just a couple of quick observations to that, that yeah, there was significant investigations mm -hmm. that ended up not meriting or um, coming with convictions. Well, none of them. Yeah. Um, and then secondly, that the amount of investigations into the personal life mm -hmm. that was going on at that time. As far as like, you know, consensual, yes, she's young, mm -hmm. she's an intern, there's mm -hmm. a significant power differential. Mm -hmm. But again, what's interesting, she, when she's with Linda Tripp, this is all kind of in confidence when you're talking about a relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Linda Tripp is a Republican, like very strong Republican anti-Clinton. Uh, and is like, oh, really? And is recording this. Yeah. And so, you know, she again, she's really taken advantage of in multi you know, multiple ways in this mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. And she kind of, uh, what happened, ends up happening to her is almost like she's like the first person that's like online bullied um, more than anybody else had ever been like, I mean, because the, the, the internet was actually emerged on the Drudge Report um, online, which was kind of a new first, right? The way that the scandal emerged uh, about, I believe, about the tapes and, and, and whatnot. And, and that was, you know, from then on, she, her, she was totally vilified. And what I, what I was saying before is that it just, I find it interesting though that, you know, it, again, even the name of it was the Monica Lewinsky affair. One really, is that the proper name for it? That's the, well, that's up to interpretation, I suppose, but it got to the point where because Clinton had um, had violated his oath of the, in the eyes of the um, the House, because he had uh, testified under oath that he did not have sexual relations with her, and then emerged that he did, that he had perjured himself, therefore, and he was uh, impeached in the House again. Now, when it went to the Senate, he was acquitted. I don't have the margin on here, but I know it was a lot a lot less than what it was with Johnson. There was no like it wasn't like one vote shy. It was like way way less than it was for, um, for Johnson. Because most Americans, when they were polled, which is interesting, and you might be touching on this later, um, most Americans just believe that in terms of his private life, this was not his, it was not their business. Um, they, most Americans felt like they were happy with what was going on in the country. The economy was great. Gas prices were like about a dollar fifty, dollar dollar seventy five, whatever. They were very cheap. Dollar twenty five. At one point, ninety nine cents in Indiana. Yeah. Eighty nine cents. I think I found that one time. I could fill up my Nissan Sentra for ten bucks, full <laughs> tank of gas. So people were happy with that, right? And there's there's a, you know connection even to today. If people don't really are not really vested in it, are they going to care as much? And that's kind of what we saw there. So I think most people were like, yeah, he's going to be like, yeah, it's the lecherous, the lecherous guy you wouldn't want your daughter to hang out with. But now we like him as president. So you know, we're the country was not in favor of his his removal from office, and it ends up ultimately backfiring for Republicans in the midterm elections in 1988 because actually the House, he, the, the, the uh, Democrats, which is not the usual trend, gained five seats, which is usually, it's usually the opposite. Usually in the midterm between the two presidential elections, whoever's the president in power tends to lose, their party tends to lose some seats. In his case, they actually gained uh, uh, five seats. So, so yeah, he, so he was acquitted and that was, uh, um, and then the affair, so, so to speak, did not really end there, but, um, but then his presidency did shortly thereafter, and then, um, meaning the story. Because um, this was, I mean, she's been on the news, it's been brought up multiple times, and when, when Hillary Clinton was running, um, this, this uh, story also kind of reemerged again. So, questions about this, about this part, or comments or anything? Most of you were born, like, after this happened, which is, like, crazy when I think about it. So, you were one, so you were actually alive, but you don't, you don't really remember it too much. Yeah. 
I was uh, in, in college, and I was in, in uh, Washington, D.C. when this was going on, and I had a haircut at the time that kind of resembled Monica Lewinsky's, and I used to get stopped on the street nonstop with people telling me that I looked like Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> you know who you look like? And like, yes, I know. <laughs> we just have to, thanks. I don't think we look that much alike, but okay, I guess the hair, the hair does it. So, um, so with that, I will turn over to my colleague. I believe this is the next, uh, yeah, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll turn this off right now. So raise your hand if you think you have a pretty good idea of what the impeachment case with uh, Donald Trump is about. Like, if you're... If you think you know, raise your hand. Okay. All right. So, um, just for the audio uh, recording of this, just about uh, four people raised their hand, and um, you know, everybody's in a different spot uh, as far as our understanding. I didn't plan on covering a lot of the details. Um, we we could simp we could get into those details based on your interest. I thought I'd try to do a, a pretty quick overview. Um, as well as show kind of some of the transcript of, of the phone call that really um, led to the impeachment case. But if you're not familiar, um, there was a phone call on July 25th between Donald Trump and the new president of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky. And I just wanted to show that transcript um, before we go back to this process. So I highlighted a segment here and Zelensky is basically saying, hey, we, you know, we've, we need your support if you don't know they're in a war with Russia. And there's about 13,000 people who have been killed in this war. Russia's literally in Ukraine. And he's like, we need help on defense. We're ready to buy more javelins. These are missiles from the United States. Um, Congress had already appropriated about $390 million for defense assistance to Ukraine, but it hadn't been sent yet. So Trump responds, well, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot. It's that I'd like you to do us a favor aspect that's really, really consequential. But um, there's a couple other parts here it's on your own if you want, but he's basically talking about, I would like to find out about what happened with that whole situation. I guess you have one of your wealthy people, the server, they say Ukraine has it. So this is kind of getting at what is the source of the 2016 um, in, uh, hacking of, of the Democratic servers by Russia. Trump suspects it's really Ukraine that, that originates this Russia investigation. And he wants, he basically is starting to put the screws to, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and again, we can get into all kinds of weeds of the details, but yes, this is a rough transcript the there, the, the, that the White House released, the summary. There's some portions that are deleted. Yeah. Yeah. So what I thought we could do first is just provide a, a brief overview and then kind of get down whatever details and questions you guys have. Um, but basically, he's talking about how he wants Attorney General um, and, and Rudy Giuliani are going to be in touch with you, with you. And a little bit of context, too, like literally the day before the Russia investigation, um, uh, the Mueller, uh, Robert Mueller had issued the, the report the day before. Um, so that's a little bit of the transcript, the rough transcript of uh, the phone call on July 25th. So 
A whistleblower, there's, there's a person, a CIA analyst who's, re, you know, decoding, you know, this transcript and it's raising red flags. Like, wait a minute, your president who's asking a newly elected president um, to basically help, uh, help with a domestic issue, uh, an issue with would be, you know, the upcoming presidential election because he's ultimately saying, I want you to, uh, I think I forgot that slide. Um, the next part of the rough transcript is saying, um, talking about, uh, you know, we want you to be in touch with Rudy Giuliani. And, and the other thing, there's a lot of talk about the Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution. This would be Joe Biden. And the concern to Trump is this is, again, the summertime that he thinks his biggest competition for the 2020 election is Joe Biden. So it would be beneficial to him if there's an announcement of an investigation into the Biden family um, and his son, um, who happened to be serving in a role um, uh, in, in a Ukrainian um, energy company. So. That's a little bit of background about the phone call, but a CIA analyst is coming across this and it's raising red flags. So contacts um, the inspector general and this information ends up getting into the house intelligence. Um, they have testimonies, you know, initially closed doors and then ultimately they have open testimonies, public hearings, they approve two articles of impeachment in mid-December. And then more recently, uh, the Senate took up the trial um, in January. Uh, Democrats wanted witnesses. Um, we could talk about comparisons to um, the Clinton uh, trial. In that case, the Senate voted 100 to 0 on the rules for the trial in the Senate. So there was strong consensus between Democrats and Republicans, I mean, strong consensus, there's unanimous consent on the rules. This time around, you know, there was key, do there was key witnesses, um, some of which you may know, um, John Bolton, who is uh, the National Security uh, Council advisor uh, to, to uh, President Trump. There's Secretary of State uh, Pompeo. There's his Chief of Staff, uh, uh, Mick Mulvaney and key people who would be um, first-hand witnesses to this phone call um, and to the broader context behind it, because it wasn't just a phone call, there was other pressure. Uh, Ukraine was wanting a visit with the White House. They wanted to be recognized by uh, the Trump administration, and essentially that recognition and the military aid was all predicated on them first saying that they were going to open up an investigation. See your hand up, yeah. Say that again? They wanted to impeach him over that phone call he made with the Ukrainian president? Yes, the, the, the broad part of the charges against him that we'll get to in a, in a moment are based on the phone call as well as other contexts related to the relationship between uh, the United States and Ukraine. Right. Yeah. If he never answered the phone, <laughs> we ever be talking about that? Um, well, I think that's hard to say. I think let's let me try to cover just a little bit more ground first, and we'll revisit that in just a moment, uh, yeah. because it is, I think, more than just the one phone call. 
um, you know, if you were to, to really get into all the details, it was, there was more pressure both before and after this phone call as well. And can I have a little bit of context, Tim? Yeah. Please jump in. I, th you, I think you kind of touched on it. The reason, I don't know if people realize what the situation is between the U.S. and the Ukraine and Russia, right? So the Ukraine depends on us for missiles to essentially protect them from Russia. Russia is their largest threat, their biggest enemy. Um, and for a while, I mean, the, from the American perspective, Russia was also our enemy as well. So that's all kind of part of this as well. The idea that this is this has more to do with just simply with a, just a, a simple phone call about you know doing us a favor. There's a lot more context to it, the implications of the U.S.-Russia relationship um, and the relationship with the Ukraine. Sorry. Yeah. work. There's a lot of places uh, that you could go to, to kind of provide arguments for and against um, this impeachment case, but since a couple hands were already raised about um, what this is about and kind of arguments for and against. I thought I'd just point you to one. This is um, an overview. It's, it's called The Guide to the Case for and Against Removing Trump. It's from the New York Times. And this is, you know, if you went through the formal charges, it's, it's much lengthier than this. This is a, supposed to be an abbreviated um, list of the charges. So abuse of power, um, that Trump used his, the power of his office to solicit Ukraine to announce investigations into his political rivals. So you're talking about the phone call. There was pressure um, by Giuliani, uh, Ambassador Sondland, Sondland and others, there was basically a side foreign policy going on through the uh, informal channels, his personal lawyer, Giul uh, Giuliani, um, the uh, ambassador to the European Union, Sondland, to, to, to basically let Ukraine know, like, hey, this aid isn't coming, and we're not having an official visit, a White House visit, until you announce the investigations. So if you're saying he didn't answer the phone call or whatever that day, it's broader than that. Um, as far as the, the charges are being made. So what, what you can see here is it's trying to do kind of a uh, point-counterpoint, uh, providing what the, what the charges are. You know, Republicans would say, well, there's no explicit quid pro quo of, of this for that. Um, and, and, and really, I think the defense is, ultimately, the aid was released. Uh, there wasn't a, an investigation announced by Ukraine, so therefore um, there wasn't a, a quid pro quo. Um, so this site um, does a pretty good job of concisely making those, those arguments kind of for and against uh, impeachment. So... I'm sorry. Uh, for uh, skull crime, at the very least, conspiracy. 
Okay. Well, first, I didn't create, I was trying to come up with one quick overview of arguments for and against. I didn't make these highlights. Can I just finish? I didn't make these highlights. These are highlighted here uh, for the re some of the arguments against. And then there's a clarification here of uh, basically explaining, okay, no quid pro quo, but one, te one, te uh, one witness testified that Sondland had told him the president said that there would be a stalemate if Mr. Zelensky did not make a, uh, a public announcement. So those are simply highlighted because they're showing that there's an explanation and more context of what's highlighted. I didn't highlight those. I'm trying to do a quick overview of, of what this case is about. I'm not trying to you know, just show the arguments against impeachment. But we can certainly do that once I cover the basics first. Good? Okay. Okay, so that, you know, we can get into more of the details about really the nuts and bolts of arguments for and against. Um, I think um, what I was trying to, before we got a little bit into the weeds there, I was trying to make a case about one of the key sticking points for Democrats is, you know, the Senate has the sole power to try, um, according to the Constitution that uh, Professor Fafleese mentioned earlier. Um, I think Democrats would question what kind of trial that really was because there wasn't witnesses um, and the, you know, there wasn't documents that were subpoenaed that was brought up in, in the trial. But regardless, after a couple weeks, there was the vote um, that took place this last, what was that, Wednesday-ish? Wednesday? Um, and you know how the vote turned it out. I think I had that up there earlier um, where it was basically 48 to... Um, 48 yeses uh, that he did abuse power. So this is essentially a party line vote with the exception of Mitt Romney on the abuse of power and then all Republicans voting no other than Mitt Romney and then on the instruction, all Republicans no, all Democrats yes. Uh, and as you probably know, you would need two thirds. So you would need 67 yay votes. So they were really short of both of those. So a couple points that I wanted to make before we just open it up. Um, some have said, you know, some of the arguments against impeachment were saying, you know, we, this is a first term president, unlike some of the previous cases um, with uh, Nixon and, and uh, Clinton, you know, we have an upcoming election in nine months. So some Republicans said, hey, we should let the voters decide. Um, a couple of Republicans have said this isn't, you know, appropriate behavior, but we can let the voters decide. I was just kind of interested in what your guys' thoughts were on that argument. Yeah. Nine months is a long time. Other thoughts? There's really not a, a right or wrong answer. The reason I ask you is because Congress is basically saying they want you to decide instead of them deciding, you know, the fate of the president they would like you to decide. So does that seem more democratic? I mean, it's not really more democratic. It's Okay. So it's not really a, a democratic solution because we don't have a simple majority deciding the presidency, as you probably know from 2016 or 2000, where the, the candidate with the most votes doesn't necessarily win. It's the Electoral College. A, a couple critiques of this. I, I do think at, at face value, it seems pretty appealing. Congress is polarized, as you saw with the vote. Let's turn it over to the American people. 
uh, Professor Fafleis mentioned how the economy is doing well and other things. One of the concerns with this, um, I, I guess there's a couple, one of which this case is about potentially a president using the power of the office to pressure a foreign government to interfere in that upcoming election, to get them to kind of tip the scales, to make an announcement about the Biden family uh, with the hopes of kind of, um, you know, bringing negative attention to potentially a key competitor. So one of the criticisms of, about that is, is simply that um, it's already, um, I, you know, uh, the Democrat, um, uh, who is Adam, it? Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff. Schiff. Uh, brought up how he's trying to cheat the next election, so you can't necessarily let the, the voters decide. A second argument against that is, is, you know, and the Constitution says it's the Senate's job to try impeachment, and so they should have a trial, um, a fair trial, and, and make the chart, make the case themselves, to not punt it to the citizens and make us decide. I mean, only a few of us raised our hands that we knew much about the details. And if we really, really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of this, myself and Professor from Fleece, we wouldn't know all the details either. Mm -hmm. So to put this completely on us makes it a little bit difficult. Uh, some people would say it's those members of Senate, that's their constitutional obligation to make this decision. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mean with regards to the election, Courtney? Or you mean like, like, like I agree, I agree. One of the things that uh, I was, one of the takeaways for me with this impeachment process is just how divided we are. Um, I think that there's a, a certain segment of us that just don't know where it's so confusing. There's so many details. Um, and then there's another camp of us that are, are team Democrat. And we feel all along that this, tr this president is, is wrong for various reasons, and this finally proves it, and we need to impeach him. And then there's those of us that are team Republican, and we feel like this has been a, you know, out to get you uh, by Democrats from the get-go, from his first election. They've always been you know, investigating him and his taxes and Russia and Stormy Daniels, and the list goes on and on. And we're gonna, we're gonna vote team Republican when it gets to the election. So I think the, the point that I'm saying is I don't know that, you know, some of us are just unaware, others of us are already decided um, strongly one way or the other. And that's basically this, you know, in case you didn't see the headline, do you, do Americans support removing Trump from office? This goes back from October of 2000. Yeah, 19, yeah, right? 2019 mm -hmm. is when this started. So the first month of October of 2019 until um, just last week or just yesterday. And we're completely split on this, which um, I also will point to as a takeaway that, you know, I think we really have different media ecosystems and we are, you know, we don't have a shared reality of 
this particular uh, issue and many others. We just feel uh, completely different. We have different facts or we highlight different facts. Um, sometimes we don't have facts. So it's just, you know, Team Democrat and Team Re uh, Republican are on just different planets. Mike. I just want to throw out in the, put this in the context of the Federalist Papers and Washington's Papers, his belief on uh, foreign influence mm -hmm. yeah. in the new republic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then also, uh, when we were formed, there were no term limits. Yeah. That didn't come until FDR. Yeah. Limiting the, the presidency. So the idea of wait for the next election founders knew there was always another election. Yeah. We needed something to jump in prior because there could be something occurring at that moment. Mm -hmm. So waiting was not an option. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of ways that it's important to go back to the framers, the mindset, the arguments that they, or the, uh, what's stated in the Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors, what does that really mean? Right. Arguably, um, if you look at the Federalist Papers, it means crimes against the state. It doesn't have to be an actual crime. It's a public official who's doing something that's hurting the state. And what is the state? The state is the government. So, um, you know, using public office to essentially hurt the government itself. And it wasn't invented by Americans. It was used <coughs> Oh, yeah. This is English common, you yeah, know, this goes law. back hundreds of years. And we could, you know, show cases of people who had impeachment charges brought against them for um, high crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah. Well, it was also left deliberately vague. As I think what right. Professor Navratil was alluding to is that this is a pol more of a political, even if you look at the way it's been interpreted over the years, <coughs> that this is not necessarily an issue of, of crime in the sense of you committed actual crime against the law. This is more of a, of a, of a political issue as well. Yeah. One of the things, you know. So how can you say, well, I'm vague and, and I really don't have all the facts and I'm not sure. Like, and that's the reason to, to not pursue this. Mm -hmm. It's another obstruction. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. If I could connect a couple comments for a moment. Um, and, and also with what is on the screen, if we can put all three of these and, and juggle all three at the same time. I think to the Republican senators, they're saying, look at this. Look at how divided we are. This is just taking all Americans now, Democrats and Republicans, putting us together. And essentially, depending upon the time point, we're pretty split. Now this, you know, if you take the margin of error, plus or minus 
we don't know exactly. You know, it could be you know a slight majority don't support, a slight majority support. Do you want to be one of those sub senators? I think one of the keep them. I think there's a few things going on politically. Donald Trump is more popular in the states than many of these Republican senators are. So if they were to make a vote to remove him from office, mm -hmm. you're you know a the public's divided on this. B you're, you know, as a senator making a decision to remove uh, the president who's really popular in your, in your home state. And then to go back kind of with the framers mindset, when the Constitution was written, they didn't have this, they didn't envision that there was going to be these two major political parties mm -hmm. that were so polarized, two and only political, you know, two political parties, and that they were so polarized was not something that they would envision. So it gets a little tricky to kind of think about the remedies that they would have had. Um, but certainly, you're right. Uh, you know, we, I didn't make any claim that he violated a criminal statute. Um, this, you can be impeached. It doesn't have to be criminal. I'm saying it doesn't have to be criminal. I'm saying that, you know, to your point, it doesn't have to be criminal. That's what high crimes and misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excuse me? Correct. One of the arguments that Republicans would make is that what was uh, done by President Trump is not uh, a criminal violation and thus not impeachable. I'm not making that claim. I'm just saying that you know I, what was on the screen was that there was there was um, uh, that was one of the counterpoints. Yes. Hmm. Because, for example, you could be watching a car crash on two different, two different news outlets, they're going to have two different perspectives. Yeah. So it's, it's the bias over the other, and I think that's what we base our opinions off of. Not only news outlets, but also when we're growing up, we mm -hmm. are kind of not forced, but we're around people who teach Yeah. Right. So that's what we grew up knowing. Sure. I think that's absolutely the case. I think that, that you know, one of the points I was, uh, my, you know, the implications for me that I wanted to highlight was just that one there, is that, you know, we, we you know, if I'm a strong Republican and I go to my sites on, on, the, on the Internet or I go to my Fox News, I'm, I'm just getting a different narrative and a different story. Um, different spin on things, and if I if I'm a liberal, I'm going to my MSNBC and some of my liberal websites, or my Facebook feed or whatever it may be. I'm just getting different bits of information, or the friends that I hang out with, the family that I have. We just have a completely different view yeah. on these things. So yeah. you're absolutely right. I think it makes it really hard. And I think we're seeing this here. We didn't see any really talk about you know the Clinton or Nixon um, discussions, and, and here we are now. It's like we're struggling to. Or at least I feel like I'm struggling to get anything out of my mouth before I feel like I have to clarify it, provide context, yeah. um, or backtrack a little bit because this is just like, so wait a minute, what about this? What about that? Um, and that's partly, you know, right here that I think we're really in a spot. Maybe we got um, another question too. Can yeah. I get a question? Um, well, since the founding fathers didn't create like a set of guidelines, what is like impeachable? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't Congress today make a guideline? <laughs> 
I mean, they do have the power to change or add to mm -hmm. the Constitution. Mm -hmm. To add an amendment to the Constitution to clarify it a little bit more. Well, I think it was left deliberately vague on purpose because the, with the idea that we don't really know kind of what's going to come our way anyway. Um, and, 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 you know, but one of the things we did allude to in things like the Federalist Papers was that the idea of foreign inter interference was kind of one of the big ones. Um, I mean, that was kind of specifically mentioned. But yeah, it's not, it's not a bad point. I mean, if they, if they wanted to pass an amendment to make it a little bit clearer, they could. But I think maybe the, the, perhaps the worry is that you'll get pigeonholed then by that. And if something else comes along that may be, you know, worse later, then are you then therefore limited only to that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you have two, I think we have two questions. I don't know if, oh, go ahead, Courtney. Middle ground. Absolutely. Yeah. If it makes you feel any better, I'm sorry, before we go over it, that, I mean, if you go back to Johnson's time, it was just as divided. I mean, I think that part of it is, you know, we, we, we tend to always think that what happens to us is like the worst, you know, but it's, it, it, was, it, it was just as bad then. I mean, we went to, we were, went to war with one another over, over those particular issues. And there was talk even in Reconstruction about where the country once again go to war because they couldn't kind of hammer out some of these issues. So, yeah, I think that's, you know. It's, it's, Sure, no, but it's a fair <laughs> statement, though. It's fair, yeah. though. But we're so stubborn as a society mm -hmm. because we don't want to hear, if we think we're right, we don't want to hear anything. Yeah. And we Absolutely. aren't going to hear anything. Mm-hmm. My mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, if I'm wrong, like, you're going to sit there and, and you can tell me the sky is green, but if I think it's blue, that doesn't mean anything to me. I'll let you talk, but it's, it's not, it's not yeah. going to change my I'm going to see what I want to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jocelyn had her hand up, and then so did Mike, too. Yeah. I okay. I was just going to make the comment that having an amendment passed is a lot of work. It's just not done like yeah. that. Still haven't passed yeah. on the ERA. Yeah. yeah, the Equal Rights Amendment, yeah. So part of your point yeah. is people have to be educated, and you just can't change the Constitution. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not like tough and thing happens. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, go <laughs> Mm -hmm. And no one is really, a lot of people aren't really willing to listen to outside points from themselves mm -hmm. and actually take it in, too. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. just, not like, oh yeah, okay, that's your point. No, yeah. it's like a lot of people don't really take it in both sides. Yeah. And listen to both points. Right, you know, when we were growing up, you know, and, and some of us in this room, you had like just a few media outlets. You had ABC, CBS, NBC. You know, and then eventually yeah. WGN, WGN came along, and but you had kind of a shared, there was sort of a shared collective understanding of what the news was and what was happening. And now, because as Professor Navratil mentioned, you know, it's almost like 31 flavors, get whatever you want from whatever news outlet you want. If we can't even agree on the basic facts, how are we going to be able to kind of move forward? So I just, I, I, you know, those are excellent points. I, you know, if I could just in passing before I, I finish with what I was planning on talking about, I think it's possible. I, you know, my, my first instinct is, is I think at face value, yeah, it's really difficult. We can't agree, and I don't want to hear what you're having to say. But I do, there is research, if you want to look into deliberative um, dialogue, mm -hmm. that if we take enough time, 
have some shared readings that provide context and facts. And if we structure discussion in a respectful way that's moderated, where each person feels like they have time to hear each other out, I can show you videos of the most ardent Trump supporters and liberal Democrats hugging it out at the end of the year yeah. and changing their <laughs> yeah, views yeah. on political opinions. Yeah. Um, it's America in one room. You look, uh, do a video search on that and you can see what I'm talking about. So there is hope. That just takes a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. um, these participants literally took a week off and spent time in small group sessions. So it's possible, uh, but, it, but it is really hard. So a couple of takeaways for me, other than the, the first one we mentioned about the uh, lack of shared reality. I'm concerned, um, my own perspective is I'm concerned just about the broken institutional process that we may have now. Um, and, and, and more to that, just political norms that are really kind of eroded. Um, to the Constitution, you're right, I think it'd be great if we spelled out exactly what impeachment is. It was intentionally vague, but it also relies, I think, on a spirit of of just accepting certain boundaries and uh, norms. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, it's maybe a little bit, you know, part sociology professor, so help me out here. But, like in pickup basketball, um, we don't always have referees, right? You don't have referees mm -hmm. in pickup basketball mm -hmm. by definition. And sometimes if you're not calling your fouls appropriately, things can get out of hand pretty, pretty easily. So political norms, I think, are also just as important. We, we can't rely on our constitution or statutes to spell everything out. Part of this is that just have a certain way of acting. I think there's been some clear violations of that. And I just want to highlight all of them on, on all sides. But I think one of the things that bothered me with this process, and I just wanted to play a video clip to, to highlight that. So, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Make a decision about the way forward. And everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to uh, how to handle this uh, to the extent that we can. We're, well, this we has been fun. The kind of ball At your age, dump your parents' car insurance company. Aggressive. <laughs> That's not fair to uh, Senator McConnell, but uh, you know you get the idea. He basically is saying he, the Senate tries it, but he's in total coordination with the White House. And I think if you would think if you were on trial, um, and the judge and jury was in total coordination with the prosecutor, is that an appropriate mm -hmm. yeah, analogy? You wouldn't. I don't know yeah. that you would feel that no that defense. was very fair. Um, and just a, a couple of other quotes that I wanted to throw in here. One from um, Lindsey Graham. He basically said, I've, this is a quote, I've written the whole process off. I think this is a bunch of BS. Um, and then lastly, Marco Rubio, just because actions meet a standard of impeachment does not mean that it is in the best interest of the country to remove a, a president from office. I will not remove. I will not vote to remove the president because doing so would inflict extraordinary and potentially irreparable damage to our already divided nation. Uh, so, just that the Senate's supposed to be this um, impartial, impartial. The, the the statesmen, the people really acting in the best interests of the nation. And I think that if you go back to the framers, I think that would really be divorced from their reality of of, of just how partisan this. And, and the Democrats and Republicans in the Senate currently are. Yeah. What are some examples of like hits that take hits from like the president? What is this? I'm sorry? What are like examples 
I think what, what Rubio is probably referring to is I don't think the president or his supporters would just say, oh, okay, that's great. We're, uh, you know, we're impeached and we're going to go in the helicopter like Nixon and smile our goodbye and wave off into the sunset and let our successor take over. I think they would feel that they legitimately won an election. They're poised to win another one. And they would, you know, I think he's called it a coup. Um, you know, and I, I was going to have um, a quick video of, of what he said last week in his post announcement. But I think the concern is that there would be chaos and that there would be, you know, I don't want to say civil war, but I think that there would be unrest, potential, sure. a lot of unrest domestically. Mike? Well, his successor would have been Pence, his vice president. His vice president would have taken over. Yeah. That's the succession. Yeah, I'm just saying, I don't think. I can't envision a scenario would where he, he would away? just quietly walk away well, and a lot say. Of people, I don't think understood that or wanted to understand that. I don't think oh yeah, it's not like Pelosi or the Democrats are now president. Yeah. 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 Sure. Right. 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 Yeah, it's a good point. I want to say again to the American people how profoundly sorry I am. So when I was talking about the norms, um, Clinton is just acquitted. He goes out onto the White House lawn, and I think it's like a minute or two speech. They're going to do a, a couple cut-ups. He doesn't say much, but this is what he says, and then they're going to contrast it with Trump's speech, uh, part of Trump's speech that was over an hour from last Wednesday. For what I said and did, I want to say again to the American people how profoundly sorry I am for what I said and did to trigger these events. It worked out. We went through hell unfairly, did nothing wrong, did nothing wrong. I believe any person who asks for forgiveness has to be prepared to give it. They're vicious and mean, vicious. These people are vicious. Adam Schiff is a vicious, horrible person. Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. This can be, and this must be, a time of reconciliation and renewal for America. It was all bull <laughs> President Clinton's get about political norms. Um, you know, outing the um, whistleblower. the whistleblower. You know, you know, um, talking about Mitt Romney, who had been the one senator to vote against, vote for um, impeachment, and, and and saying that he's using his religion as a crutch. I could go on, but my concern more is about that reconciliation and healing process. It wasn't all kumbaya in the late '90s after Clinton's impeachment, um, of course. But I think that. Um, there was an, at least an attempt to like heal. And I think right now, Democrats and Republicans, I think we're pretty far from that. And um, with that, I know that that's, and I was just, I think my last point was, does this, you know, what's the implication on the Democrats? Uh, Professor Fafuis mentioned uh, Republicans really kind of ended up, um, you know, being that's hurt by the impeachment process in the late 90s. Um, could that same scenario happen for Democrats? I think we've already seen Trump's approval rating go up. Um, to its highest level uh, since he's been president, still at 49%, but it's much higher than it was. Um, at the beginning of this process, it was around 40%.
His campaign fundraising has increased significantly. So there's some similar momentum that I think he feels um, and that his party feels pretty strong position up for the mm -hmm. 2020 election. So we have about six minutes, seven minutes left. So completely turn it over to you. Um, any question? comments or questions that you guys have? I kind of wonder, you tell me what you think. I kind of suspect that he truly didn't think he did anything wrong. Yeah. I think in the short run, I really don't think that he thought that there was anything wrong with what he did. Unless you also want to weigh it against the idea that this was the day after the Mueller investigation was like kind of ended and then he, or Mueller testified and then suddenly he does this the next day. But there's a part of me that thinks that he truly thought there was nothing wrong with it. That's why he, he pushed to release that edited transcript. To the, he's the one actually who pushed for that release. So I think that, that he thought that that was gonna be like at the end of it, I'll release this transcript and it'll all be over and you know, I'm great. <laughs> I think there's two, two quick things that come to mind. In, in, I would agree completely with what she, she just said. But I also think if you're, if you're looking at the counter arguments or arguments that, that the Trump team has made, they've really evolved. It hasn't, well, they yeah, haven't, that's true. they yeah. haven't stuck to the same story. Mm -mm. If you go back through, and it takes a lot of mental time or, you know, to read through all of the arguments, <laughs> but they've changed. The second biggest contrast is keep in mind, imagine if Trump was subpoenaed and had to testify under oath in a similar situation like Clinton did. Like, okay, we're going to get you under oath and we're going to talk to you about X. And then we're going to ask some other questions about Ukraine here. And if in any way your story, and, and keep in mind what they got uh, Clinton, you know, he's trying to protect his family and with this lie. But that can happen when you're under oath. If you lie about anything, then that's perjury. So, they, so there hasn't been the equivalent scenario of getting him under oath of being, and, and of course, Democrats have tried to subpoena and multiple, not just this investigation, but the Russia investigation. So those have all been blocked. And so there's a concern by the Democrats that this is obstruction of, of, of Congress. So there hasn't been that perfect scenario of people testifying and lying under oath. Has he um, misrepresented the scenario? Perhaps. But I do think he, he's described it as a perfect phone call. Um, not all Republicans agree with that. But I do think, to her point, that that's, you know, he might just say, yeah, there's, not, there's nothing to see here. Mm -hmm. Did he actually break the law law? No, I mean, not what he, the, the phone calls on it. Well, as far as we know, when, if it comes to the, the specific issue, he didn't break the laws because there really was not a. It's not a criminal law, but Congress has the power to appropriate <coughs> the, the funds for defense for um, Ukraine. And that was a violation that um, the not the say that again. GAO had ruled General that Office, um, yeah. he did violate that act. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, yeah, so if separation of powers, Congress has the power of the purse. They appropriated that money, but for 49 days, I can't remember, 50 days, the, the aid was held up during this process of like, hey, we would like you to announce the investigation. And released now, the day after the whistleblower you know, complaint Trump came out. and his team are saying, well, we well. wanted to make sure that there wasn't corruption. And, you know, we were it wasn't because we wanted you to. So there's kind of a difference of opinion on that. But the point is, is Congress had appropriated that money and it hadn't been sent. 
and Ukraine thought it was already being said. And they had no idea that this was not being said. Yeah, yeah. awkward. <laughs> yeah, they read about it in the Politico. They yeah. saw a headline and learned that this is being held up um, because of those domestic purposes. Yeah. And you know, my students have always asked, like, hey, don't we always have quid pro quos in foreign policy? Foreign policy, yes. Like, hey, Ukraine, we're not going to give you money unless you fix corruption. Mm -hmm. That's appropriate. Hey, uh, Ukraine, we're not going to give you money unless you investigate my upcoming Cold opponent or you know a U.S. citizen. That's different. That's how it violates not only the political norms. Some people would argue campaign finance laws. Like, mm -hmm. You know what? Go ahead. Yeah, I would, I would argue it wasn't in a, you know, you could make a claim that it wasn't, I want you to get, I want you to announce this investigation of Biden by this date before I give you the money. That's not what he did. Yeah. I would like you to do us a favor, you know, and of course in the back. Yes, yes. But, but through the back channels, Giuliani, Sondland and others, they're making it clear what needs to happen for them to get the money. When the broader context emerges and all the other people that were testifying that were Ukraine experts, then it becomes clear that that was what, precisely what was intended. When the whistleblower comes out, when that becomes a headline, Trump explicitly tells Sondland, no quid pro quo. So at that point. Email. A text, wasn't it a text, I think? A text, there was, yeah. I don't Sondland remember. Sondland exchanged a text with somebody else and it said, well, it? and he said, well, there's no quid pro quo because the, the text reveals there was no quid pro quo, but that was the day after the whistleblower. Think about yeah. Got a question back there. Personally, I think firsthand witnesses in the trial in the Senate trial would have been helpful. Um, if if Demo if Democrats, it's hard to say this if I'm trying to be objective. I don't think I personally would have had a problem with. Um, them exchanging people. I think mm -hmm. it's a little weird and unnecessary to bring people who didn't have firsthand yeah. testimony to offer there. Now, I think what's important to say, it, it's a it's a question. Bo, uh, the Biden son, is, I'm sorry, is it Bo Hunter, Biden? Hunter Hunter Biden Hunter Biden um, working for Burisma in Ukraine for you know fifty million dollars, hundred million dollars for not bringing a lot of expertise. Like is that appropriate? Months. No. Mm. Is it illegal? No. And it happens essentially during every presidential administration where family members benefit in some way because of their name. So I think that they could testify all day long about that, um, and there's not going to be a real there there, because there has been investigations by Ukraine and our Department of Justice. Mm. Um, so I, don't, I think it would have been a distraction and added to a circus kind of atmosphere. But I think if, if Republicans really wanted to play, okay, we get, you get, if you want to bring um, Bolton on to testify, then we get uh, Tit for tat. Uh, Hunter Biden, then, yeah. you know, just as fairness, Even I would really have said was that's more fine, about but. Joe Biden, not really Hunter Biden, but yeah. yeah. Anyway. By the way, Joe Biden got fourth place in Iowa anyway. It all seems like a potential really yeah. close to get impeached over trying to dig up dirt on somebody who's not even maybe a front runner. Yeah. Um, but look, but look at that hubris, though. I mean, look at look yeah. at Nixon too. I mean, he won one state. The other guy got. I mean, he's still though that 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 paranoia, that yeah. hubris, that. Yeah, no, I. At the time, I, you know, he was. This is all. He was. You're right. And the and and by the way, the st the three states that matter, 
are Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And those states, Joe, looked really strong, especially in the summer if you looked at the polling averages. So yeah, it's revisionist history, but um, also pretty risky move if he really, you know, if we're making the claim that what he did was really wrong. We're actually out of time, but we are out of yeah. time. But a couple more. I just want to sum up real quick. So basically, the Biden family gained uh, money or something. His son. Ukraine. His son. Yes. From a business that's located in Ukraine. Yes. And then Trump wanted to dig up dirt on that, but he asked it in a messed up way. From asking, they were asking for defense money. You have to open up the investigation yeah. into what happened there and announce it publicly so everybody knows. It's conditional. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. I think that's pretty a, much a, a quick overview. Yeah. It's <laughs> so a good so audience. Family gave 50 million dollars. Well, he got paid like fifty thousand a month. I think it 50, was. Yeah. Fifty thousand dollars yeah. a month. Yeah, it wasn't. Fifty to a hundred thousand yeah. dollars a month for not being. So I mean, was was that total? I mean, and that kind of stuff happens all the time. That's totally. Inappropriate. People sit on boards. He sat yeah, on a board. Yeah, but you know, but the issue is whether or not whether or not Joe Biden though was like inter interfering inter interfering in Ukrainian domestic politics and going after a prosecutor and I mean, the, so there's more to it than simply just Hunter Biden working for Burisma. Yeah. He's more. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's important to say there's a whole series of conspiracy theories about the Bidens that aren't true, right? Like that they're making all these accusations to throw dirt at him. Yes. Yes, he did something that everyone else does. So like. John Kerry, former senator, former secretary of state, is on the board of like U.S. Bank or Bank of America. Yeah. He, he knows nothing about banking. Yeah, that's, just yeah. How that's it how it works. But they're throwing all this stuff at him, and there's nothing that he is doing different than anyone else. So that, but Trump also is buying some of those conspiracy theories and wanting them to go after him and show right. that they're true. Well, it's like look at the shiny yeah, penny so over the, here. Yeah, right. Pay no it's, attention it's to the man great, behind the curtain. Back to that media. You're right. The, it really the is ecosystem. It just you throw enough crap into the. A fan, and it's really hard to have any yeah. back. We He's don't have the three old guys telling us the brilliant. news anymore. It's just, it's all too much information, most of which, some of which isn't true, and it gets us really in a lot of different places. Confused, yeah. So it makes us confused. And then, I just like, oh, one thing that I think is really sad that I think we as a society need to think about is there's really good journalism going on, and it was journalists that pulled a lot of this detail out. And there's good reporting, and there's a lot of reason that we should believe and trust in news outlets. Yeah. I think part of the challenge is navigating who's doing the good stuff and who isn't. Right. And so when I hear comments, some of the comments I've heard is like, I don't know who to trust. Yeah. It's all crap. It's not all crap. It's not it's all crap. Stuff. Um, and so we should, that's hopefully part of the things you should be exploring in college mm -hmm. is looking at some of those sources and helping to figure out how you'll be a voter in the future. That's yeah. a good goal to have. It's great. Hey, man. All right. It's a good audience. Thank yeah, thanks for all thanks your questions. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Good questions. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much.